Hello, welcome to Time to Say Goodbye. It is the 13th of December. I can't tell. Oh, it's my washing machine is on. I was like, I think my heater went on, which means that I have to stop the episode and go stop it. But it was a momentary buzz. Um, we are here, Andy and Tammy. Hey, guys. How are you How's two doing? Good, how are you? Long time no see, it's feel like. I know. Tammy, are you staying in a very uh, old-fashioned Korean house? It looks I'm staying like... in a really old-fashioned Korean place, like from yeah. the 80s-ish. Tammy's design. in Korea, for those it. who don't didn't listen last week, and she will be there for the next three months. What What do you mean old-fashioned? Like, are there paper doors and stuff? <laughs> Not quite that old-fashioned. More like the quick-build 80s version of oh, <laughs> Korean yeah. construction. Like an old... Vi- that, like, in Korea, they're called pila. Like... Yeah, I have a, a glass or a cheap glass, fake glass yeah. door behind me oh, between the bedroom and glass. kitchen. Yeah, I'm not even oh, sure it's it. glass. It might be plastic. I'm not sure. <laughs> cool. Um, where? So yeah, you are not you in Seoul right now, right? I'm not in Seoul. I went to Seoul over the weekend and I saw one of our Discord members there and we're going to have a Discord meetup next week. But um, yeah, it seems like a it was, I mean, Seoul is a huge city, but in the place I'm staying right now, it's 600,000 people. So to go to Seoul, you feel like, oh my gosh, it's like an exotic trip to the metropolis sort of thing. 600,000 people? Oh my God. That's Which is massive. a big city, but by Korean standards, kind of small, yeah, or Asian like, standards, small, you know? San Francisco oh. is like 800,000, I think, or something like that. So yeah. it's almost, you know, that's three quarters away to being to San Francisco. What else, <laughs> yeah. What are you up to there? Like, what? how are things going? We're going to doing... check up every single week. <laughs> yeah, I hope this isn't too boring to people. I'm just, I'm doing some reporting and I'm hanging out with my family and just getting updated since I haven't been able to travel here in a while. And the Korea Omicron situation, I don't know if you guys have been reading, but there's a lot of anxiety over it. And they just changed the rules so that you have to show proof of vaccination everywhere you go. So you can't go anywhere indoors without that, which is new. Do they enforce it? Yeah, they've been enforcing it more and more. I mean, obviously, it's a little bit place to place. Um, There was a big hubbubaloo over foreigner entry because foreigners weren't able to get their vaccination card certified by the government. Um, And it was mostly sort of like, not to be too callous, but like white guys who were complaining about (laughs) it. (laughs) But the Korean government has since responded to their complaints and everything's okay now. Yeah. How long has it been since you've been in Korea? I got here almost a month ago. I mean, ago. like since the last time you were Oh, sorry, there. sorry. Uh, 2018. Has it changed very much? For three years. You know, Seoul's really quiet is the impression. Like Why, you can be out on Saturday night. Yeah, you can be out on Saturday night in very like usually busy bar neighborhoods and it feels really not like Seoul. So that part is strange. But Did apparently they... I missed the window where that where that had come back to life, so. Oh yeah, it's like up that and was down, like you know. The summer and exactly in the United States, it was like three months of glory. Totally. And now we're like back to they just shut down or they just reinstituted the mask mandate indoors in California today. Okay. I don't know what that means because you know everyone wears a mask indoors where I am anyway, so I don't think it makes any difference unless they cut out indoor dining at some point or something like that. Mm-hmm. I mean, all of this is so ridiculous anyway. It's like the places where people could actually catch coronavirus from each other they take off their masks and eat you know or drink or something like that i'm just like what are we doing like this is so stupid like either you know know. 
shit or get out the pot. Either shut down California <laughs> yeah. again so I can drive to the beach without traffic, or you know, just don't. You know, but like you gotta do one of the two. Like this sort of like going back and forth and doing stuff. So, like I don't, I don't know what it does right now, except for like make life more miserable for people who have to like the sort of workers who have to enforce the mask mandates you know <laughs> yeah it's like like, well, like people at this point are so over this right that like they're just gonna be like no fuck you and yeah. you know and then some poor person has, they don't even check vaccine cards here i was gonna ask what, what it's in like in, do they do yeah, that in, in, in berkeley philly, and philly yeah um only at a few places but re- today's breaking news is that they're going to now make it a state law but we'll see if it actually happens I, yeah. they've checked it I think like like a one place, like the good sushi place in town, <laughs> checks it. Oh. Uh, <laughs> the Asian place. Uh, I would say it's like one out of six here where I've been checked, right? Where they're all supposed to check, but I would say like right. one out of six places I've been to, they check. I mean, I don't ever go anywhere, but like, you know, um, that's that's generally, like I'm always surprised when they're like, can I see your vaccine card? I'm like, I don't Oh, yeah. Whoops. You're supposed to do that. Anyway, we have a lot to talk about this week. Um, we have uh, Brian Stryker on, right? And he's going to introduce Brian when he comes on in about like 20 minutes or so here. But, uh, you know, he we're going to talk about the Democrat Party, right? <laughs> and um, the future of the Democrat Party. Is that right? The future? Of, is that the correct way to say it? Our, what the uh, Democrats should be doing. How about that? Yeah. yeah exactly. <laughs> I was wondering if there was political meaning between by you saying the Democrat Party and not the Democratic Party. I'm like, oh, this is like a deep J dig of some sort. What's the difference? I don't know. <laughs> I wasn't sure if you were trying to use it in an argumentative way. <laughs> I use I use them interchangeably. I didn't know there was a difference between the Democrat Party. Is there is it the Democratic Party or the Democrat yes, Party? I guess we usually say Democratic, but yeah, no, I think uh I don't know, it's, it's funny we're going to talk about this because we spend so much time on this podcast talking about how we're not Democrats and how we, <laughs> no. we don't want to be identified as like centrist Democrats. But I think we've talked a lot of, you know, a lot, a lot of, you know, on this, on this show, we've talked a lot in a lot of episodes about from the outside, like, what are they doing wrong? And so it does seem like, um, you know, hopefully it's like a good conversation about some of these issues we talked about before. All right. All right. Uh, well, we're happy to bring on our guest today. His name is Brian Stryker. He's a partner at ALG Research, which is a public opinion research and consulting firm based in Chicago. Brian, thanks for coming on today. Hey, thanks for having me. Uh, so the reason we asked Brian to come on is uh, we think he has some you know, good, uh, somewhat inside inside, I guess. I don't know if you're inside, but like closer to the inside than we are about the problems of messaging with the Democratic Party. These are kind of topics we've touched on in the past on the podcast. Um, it is also worth mentioning, Brian is also, um, I don't know if he is a proud Kamiak Knight, but he is a fellow Kamiak Knight <laughs> with me from the uh, rough streets of Mukilteo, Washington. Uh, we went to high school together <laughs> uh, years ago. Um, I was trying to think like, how, well, like if we, if we ever actually like officially had any activities together i think we're on quiz bowl together or like academic i, I was gonna say we probably did some <laughs> dorky quiz stuff together if i had to guess but yeah yeah i remember i was very bad but you were pretty good you were good at sciences um <laughs> and this is you know 50 miles north of tammy growing up in tacoma and pretty close yeah. to jay's parents in woodby island wow. um uh, so shout out to the sonics <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, yeah, as you mentioned, yeah. (laughs) The nostalgic items of our childhood. Right, right. Uh, So before we get into this, actually, I think, Brian, you have a pretty interesting story, how you got involved in all this politics stuff in the first place. So how did you go from Mukilteo to to what you do now uh, with the Democratic Party? Yeah, for me, so it was was really around the Iraq War. So I was... I was very into science. I was studying physics, a physics major and writing computer code for a fiber optic cable tester. And then we invaded Iraq and it just felt very small to me. Um, And so I got involved with a congressional campaign in Washington, moved out to Florida to try and help John Kerry, uh, which felt like one of the better paths to uh, in the war didn't, uh, did not work out, but then stayed engaged uh, and in 2005, moved to D.C. and started working for a different polling firm and have been in polling ever since. Great. Uh, and so, well, yeah, was there was there, like what was do you remember? Like, was there a clear moment when you kind of had this transformation? Like none of this like engineering shit anymore. Which I'm going to go into like <laughs> politics and stopping the Iraq <laughs> war. Or... No, it, I don't know. It's one of those things I, you know, I wish I had like the epiphany moment where I threw all my stuff down and walked out or something like that. But <laughs> no, it was just very much, I can definitely remember reading the news while at work and being pretty horrified at sort of where this was going and where it was going to go. Um, and uh, this was during a summer job and then sort of said, ah, I don't, I, you know, once I graduate college, I don't think this is for me and I'm going to start looking into politics and see what I can do. Yeah, cool. So the reason we're talking today is um, the, to set the stage. Last month, uh, you know, as we all know, the Democratic candidate, candidate in the Virginia governor race, Terry McAuliffe, loses to Glenn Youngkin, the Republican candidate. And this group called Third Way, uh, yikes, hired ALG Research and Brian in particular to conduct research on why Terry McAuliffe lost. Um, so Brian did some research. Uh, he produced a memo. It's been widely circulated, I guess, within the party, right? And he was interviewed about it in the New York Times. Um, so, you know, we want to jump into it, but a few choice quotes to get started. Um, two things, I guess, to point out. The first is that in the New York Times interview, you know, they asked you, if you're advising a Democratic client in 2020, what do you tell them? And you said, I would tell them that we have a problem. We've got national branding problem that is deeper than a lot of people suspect. They said, well, what is that problem in a nutshell? And you said, People think we're focused on social. We're more focused on social issues than the economy, and the economy is the number one issue right now. So, you know, obviously, we want to talk about that. And the second is, as part of this memo, um, this is just a brief quote from your memo. But um, you know, listeners probably remember that there was this question of how, to what extent did critical race, race theory, this like bogeyman, in the news, to what extent did critical race theory swing the election for the Republicans? And you say that, you know, education mattered. But really, it was school closures and COVID policy. These were bigger factors. And you say in your memo, voters were more animated talking about their dissatisfaction with their local school district's handling of COVID. They felt buffeted or buffeted, buffeted, I don't know how to pronounce this word, um, hemmed in by changing and inconsistent policies and concerned about the impact of student learning loss. Uh, One participant of Biden voters stated flat out that her vote for Youngkin was, quote, against the party that closed the schools for so long last year. Um, so, I mean, just to kind of jump in, like, can you describe, like, what was this mission you were given and like, how did you do this research and what did you, what was that experience like? Sure. So we did a bunch of surveys for a different group before the election and then some others after the election as well. And Virginia was obviously a big, 
focus, although a lot of these stories were true in New Jersey, too, uh, where Democrats did poorly. But the thing that Third Way really wanted to get at here is um, Third Way is a more centrist group, but I think this was much more about rather than sort of pushing an ideology, this is about figuring out what the heck happened and how do we sort of come back for, from it. And uh, they have been talking about us not being focused enough on the economy for a while, right? And I think that's, again, not really an ideological thing. You're hearing that from all sort of corners of the party. Um, but one of the things was to try and get into this focus group and figure out how much of that was true. How much of a role did critical race theory play, right? It was the sort of thing that really was covered in the news beforehand. Was it a big deal or was it sort of a lot of, you know, noise that didn't really matter to voters? Uh, and then uh, was it a big deal? I mean, like, did people, like, it seems like you're, you're, the conclusion is that it wasn't, right? But like, I, is there like a real way to separate like school closures, for example, from critical race theory, like in terms of people just feeling dissatisfied with the way in which their schools operate? So the closures and the, when you ask parents right now, two thirds of them think their kids have lost learning over the pandemic. I mean, if you ask people in 2018, have your kids lost learning in school, what would 5% of people, maybe something like that, agree with that, but it's widespread. So I actually think they kind of play into each other. The bigger deal is the learning loss. The bigger deal is the school closed and the remote learning and all this sort of stuff. But I actually think to some degree, critical race theory was yet another example to some of these suburban voters of where uh, we are focused on something besides teaching their kids, besides teaching their kids the fundamentals and getting them back into school and that sort of thing. So I don't think you can totally separate them. Um, but I think if you had to have these voters choose, you know, would you get critical race theory out of the curriculum and go back to online learning? Or would you get kids in school and have critical race theory, even though they, they knew that critical race theory wasn't in their curriculum? But if that were the choice they were forced with, they'd say, get those kids in school. It would have been easy for them. So... I was curious about in the the focus group, because obviously the, the social versus economic thing is kind of the dominant thing, theme that was emerging from the interviews. Um, but why is it that even though maybe they're frustrated with the inaction on the infrastructure bill, there wasn't any reflection on the pandemic packages? So in other words, they're hearing Youngkin say, OK, we're going to get rid of the grocery store tax. We're going to, you know, put more money in your pocket, et cetera. But, you know, we, we just came off of pandemic unemployment and all of these great programs, social programs that, you know, were economic programs. Why aren't those in the imagination and very recent memory of the people you spoke with? It was crazy how short their memories are <laughs> on that sort of stuff. <laughs> <Okay>. um, <laughs> It's like, what have you done for me lately? And I mean, like, on yeah, Monday, I'm like, you know, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, is that the answer? I, Just of, a short memory. I mean, because those were incredible programs that have affected people's lives. Yeah, and there were some piece of it. it they remembered two major things about the uh, the American Rescue Plan. Uh, one was the checks, which they were happy for the the stimulus checks. The other are, and this has sort of fallen out of the debate a little bit, was the expanded unemployment, which kind of cut both ways. And you certainly hear yeah. um, a lot yeah. of people that are working and sort of saying, well, why are you paying these people not to work and I'm not getting sure. these breaks? So there's a little bit of that. I don't want to say that that was the cause of any of our problems, but it, really, I think it kind of comes down to, we did all this stuff. The economy is still bad. Okay, what's next? 
Yeah. Okay. Yeah, and it was really wow. striking. You said that right. there's this like macro. You know, like we talk we like when people on the news talk about the economy, they use like macro factors like GDP and jobs in October, right? But for them, it was about um, gas costs too much and my paycheck is too small and so forth, right? Like, but that seems like it's probably true, like always, right? Is there something about, I don't know, like the messaging of like this whole Biden infrastructure stuff that is especially not effective or is it like, what what is going on? Or like, we could always say the economy is the number one issue. Is there something specific or special about the current cycle? I think uh, there's two things. One, you saw the unemployment, or not unemployment, the um, inflation numbers yesterday are high, right? Yeah. We're in the sort of 6.8% or something like that. That's pretty new. That I think you'd have to go back 20, 30 years to look at those sort of numbers. And so people kind of feel like that's new. And so the cost of things is just going way up, whereas it used to go up a little bit. But then I also think it's this, it's this very qualitative thing of, you go into a grocery store and there's an empty shelf or you go into, you know, Target and you, you can't find the exact thing you wanted or, or wherever else. And I think that's just unsettling to people in a country where you can buy anything with the touch of a button normally, right? And that's different and that's um, unsettling. So the supply chain stuff is sort of wrapped up in these sort of distribution questions, the micro distribution questions. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Which also feeds into the worker shortage or the, you know, the, yeah. that perception because people won't drive the trucks to get it to, you know, or unload right. the ports and stuff like that. Yeah. Oh gosh. Yeah. Like the, the sort of pull quote from your piece in the times was, uh, or the interview you did with the times was like, was what Andy read, right? Like that's the one that sort of went around and people were discussing, which is that Democrats are too focused on social issues. Like what, what are those social issues? Like, what do you mean by that term social issues? Yeah, I mean, I think it's complicated. I think it can be things like, even though critical race theory is something that Republicans have basically invented and, you know, injected into the political discourse, they get the sense that it's progressives that are too focused on this and sort of pushing this all <laughs> over the place, right? Um, it's like, it's it's crazy. It's actually, it's a pretty clever flip from them. But um, mm-hmm. that could be anything from, uh, I mean, Racial issues are certainly a big part of that for people, um, but in policing and uh, and oh, the right to choose. I mean, it's kind of a whole, just a whole host of things. I don't think it's necessarily one thing, but I think they just feel like anytime they hear progressives talking on TV, they're talking about um, some sort of uh, social issue, often around a group that is marginalized uh, for one reason or another, um, and. Uh, they're not hearing about sort of things that might affect uh, their income. Yeah. Well, so like the, you know, like do you sort of said this as like an intervention or as like a corrective in a way, right? Like this was like a, this is your advice to the democratic party. Like I, I've been, I mean, I don't necessarily, I actually agree that with a lot of that general idea, but the thing that I always struggle with is like, well, what does that look like? You know, like, do you, do you stop talking about race? Do you stop talking about right. cops? Like, do you, like if somebody gets shot or if uh, Ahmed Arbery, you know, comes out, uh, the verdict comes down, like, do you not talk about it? You know, like, um, how, how does that actually sort of like look yeah. within a campaign? Yeah. And I think it's hard also because the, 
the news stations and you know it's it's a good thing to cover because it's sort of got a conflict it's got a drama to it so i think it just gets picked up i mean i um andy sent me before this the piece that uh, you wrote in the new york times magazine about voters of color and um and and you were talking to the guy i think it was in flushing um and uh uh, about the protests, right, and about George Floyd and that sort of thing, the right. Chinese immigrant, um, and I think that was really dead on. I mean, I just think that that's that's the experience. We've been doing a lot of research among uh, Latinos as well in South Texas or across the, and that's exactly the sort of way they talk as well. I think it's very similar, and so I don't think it's that um, those voters or or even you know most white voters are. Like, I just don't want to hear about race. Get it out of my face. Like, I don't think that's it. I, I think it's like, um, it, it feels like there's not something for them sometimes in our agenda. And that's sort of everything we right. talk about is framed around, well, this will specifically help black, brown, you know, sort of groups of color. And it's like, well, like that's true. Um, but also um, they want to feel included in the dialogue as well, I think. Yeah. So like in, I think in this, this is from the memo, you said, quote, they, meaning the voters, they felt like racial and social justice issues were overtaking math, history, and other things. They absolutely want their kids to hear the good and the bad of American history. At the same time, they are worried that racial and cultural issues are overtaking the state's curricula. Like what is, what is an example? I don't know how much like discretion you have to talk about. Like what is an example of how they are talking about this stuff? Do they, are they actually like contradicting themselves? They're talking, it's like, well, we don't, we don't want to not talk about this. We still want to talk like, or do they feel like they have, they themselves have a sort of mixed, mixed set of emotions about this? I think that's really complicated. Some of this is a little bit of conjecture of me sort of hearing these people talk and sort of seeing other polling. But what I would say is um, they have, like they want to, talk about slavery in their history class. Like, and even, I think Glenn Youngkin sort of said in his um, uh, uh, acceptance speech, like, we want to hear about the good and the bad of American history. We're going to teach that, right? I think where some of these voters, and again, this wasn't the, their primary issue, but where they started to sort of push back is when, um, and these were all white voters for, you know, and it was when they uh, were told that, uh, or they felt like their kids were being told that America was bad, uh, being white is bad and that should be like something they should be ashamed of. Right. Like these people aren't looking for a white pride. You know? <laughs> that is not who these voters are. They are suburban Biden voters. Like they, right. you know, and they, they don't want to, you know, sweep Virginia's history out of the rug either. These aren't like your Confederate statue people. Like, right. but um, I think that was when they started to say, okay, like this is a little far for me. Brian, one of the things I was curious about was you mentioned in the memo that it didn't work for the Democrats to associate Youngkin with Trump to say you shouldn't vote for Youngkin because of Trump, um, mostly because local voters were able to differentiate their local candidate from the very sort of um, exaggerated qualities of Trump. Um, what? How do you think that works for the Democrats in terms of associating with Biden or even, you know, kind of by implication, the Obama legacy or whatever other sort of big national candidate there is i think uh when you talk about biden it's a it's a midterm election you know he's he's going to be a factor in it um and maybe trump was much more of a factor in the 2018 midterms and i think with trump out of office it's a little bit different um but i think that um mm -hmm. 
Joe Biden. Uh, uh, look, I think that that the question <laughs> is sort of Biden policies and where do people come out on that and how much do do candidates need to differentiate from it or not. Um, I will say one thing was uh, these people weren't looking for somebody. I mean, frankly, they voted for Joe Biden. They were not interested in revisiting that decision and whether they should have voted for Trump or not. That was very clear to them. Biden mm-hmm. was the right choice. He's still the right choice, uh, even if they voted for somebody else in the primary. And, and a lot of these people did. But I think that, um, uh, yeah, it just it just means that um, these candidates uh are really going to have to sort of think about, you know, what policies are they sort of on board with? What are they not? And I, I guess that's sort of the way they might have to differentiate from, from Biden if they do. Uh, Brian, I read this, Sorry, like, was... uh, I read this um, thing from, or this op-ed piece from Maya Wiley that, you know, Andy sent me and I found it very interesting because it was mostly about how like base, it, it was similar to what you said, which I was, was very surprised coming from Maya Wiley, but she just said that like Yunkin was much better at telling parents, hey, like, you know, I know that you suffered, right? Like, it, it was bad to have schools closed. And even if it was the right decision, like, I, I empathize with you. Whereas, um, you know, McAuliffe was much more like, well, it's a science, stupid. You know, which, you know, I think everyone <laughs> right. can recognize at this point, it's like a disa- catastrophic thing to say, right? Like, I mean, like, it's the type of thing that people just say on Twitter, and then they get 2,000 likes. Or like people who like have no sympathy for anything and just want to feel like intellectually superior to people who are suffering, right? Like, and so, um, and so my my like has this sort of, it says that, that that was like sort of a large, you know, like in her mind, like it wasn't necessarily that like one was right on the policy and one was wrong on the policy. It was just that like one's performance was better. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know, like how, how much did you, how much did you sort of, think about that in terms like maybe McAuliffe just like was terrible you know <laughs> like is, is that possible <laughs> or or was like the similarities in New Jersey like telling of some larger story yeah I think that and, and McAuliffe also had won eight years ago right. right in a in an Obama um well Obama was president right and that's t- un- mm-hmm. atypical right usually in Virginia the I think it's been the last 40 years McAuliffe was the only one that won when his party held power in the presidency. So right. um, maybe he did a bad job in this election in a lot of ways. Um, and maybe he was the wrong fit for the time. You know, that's certainly possible. But I do think the the New Jersey example where we actually did worse compared to uh, compared to Biden um, with a governor who had a lot of the strengths that you'd want him to have sort of points to what a national problem this is going to be. Okay. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, Brian, you talked earlier about how before you did the poll going into this poll, uh, there are a lot of conversations you had been hearing about people worried, not just in Virginia, but in many different races that the Democrats were not talking enough about the economy. Like what exactly are those sentiments that people are expressing? And if they're true, like, why is it that the Democrats are, is it just that they're bad at talking about it or is it just like, it's objectively bad for them? With insiders, you mean? Where is this sort of? Well, like, why? Why are we getting this? Yeah, you talk about like Democrats themselves were self-aware oh. of like bad messaging about the economy. Like, what exactly are those conversations like? Yeah. Well, I think there's there's a few different things that are the that distract us. I mean, one is 
we have this big build back better bill and this bipartisan infrastructure bill and all these sort of things. And we just got wrapped up in the legislative process of talking about them of, you know, Joe Manchin wants this and now AOC wants that. And it's like, just goes into this sort of like Washington parlor discussion, which is not, voters aren't trying to listen to that. Like they don't <laughs> care. Um, they just want something that helps them. <laughs> and then I also think we are much more likely to, pick up on the social news of the day and uh, talk about it. And I think that as, as elected mm-hmm. officials, we feel like we can't not respond to some of these things. And some of them we can't, right? There's no question. Um, but I think we lose discipline and focus on a lot of these things and get distracted um, from what voters are telling us they really want to hear about. doesn't mean we can't care about those other issues. doesn't mean we can't do something about a lot of these issues. But right. um just the fact of talking about the economy is uh, is the thing we need to do and do something about it. But, you know, talking about it first. So in your view, it's the Democrats have the things have the me- or have the substance. But the question is like the messaging, like they have the economic like bona fides to win the ec- economy debate. It's just that they need a well, do better job at messaging. Yeah, I mean, I think some of the stuff on taxes, I think some of the stuff on uh, job training and supply chain and stuff that we want to talk about is the bones of it are there, um, but uh, we kind of can't put it together uh, a lot of times. And the other thing I think that we, um, in terms of the thing that we won't talk about is, and I don't know why, I don't quite understand this, uh, certainly not where I came to the Democratic Party from, but the 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 value of putting in a day's work and the dignity of that and the fact that people should be respected for that and uh, and looked after for doing that. You know, I think that the the work piece of it is uh, really important for voters to hear who think that they're and know that they're working harder and harder and not getting ahead. Yeah, we seem to have lost the ability to talk about that. And I don't quite understand that. Yeah. How, how do you differentiate like the role of the media in this? Because like, you know, it just started to talk about it. Right. But I, I, I can imagine that there would be a candidate, for example, right. That would um, talk almost entirely about the things that are popular or things that are about the economy. Right. But when they, like you said, when they weigh in on a social issue, right, like that's the thing that gets broadcast out there. Right? Like, and that's what they become known for in a lot of ways. And so like, I don't know, like, you know, like, is there, does that mean that they should, I I mean, first of all, do you think that that effect is true or, and secondly, like, you know, if it is true, then like, what, what should candidates do to try and, you know, like, how do you actually even avoid being cast as like somebody who talks about social things if that's the only thing that's picked up? Yeah. Sometimes you just got to take a pass on them, I think. And just when someone asks you a question, just don't answer it. You know, we don't have to answer everything. Um, And I think that, um, sometimes it's like is some sort of if it's going to distract from the overall thing you're saying even if people agree with it like you might want to take a pass but it is really hard in the media i mean i could give you an an example of we work for gretchen whitmer in in michigan and people it is hard for them to hear anything she's saying that is not about covid because it is all the press wanted to focus on for a year and then Mm. she got into this fight with trump on it and all that sort of stuff so it's it's very hard to cut through with some of the economic stuff she is doing right and so it's not um some of this is like i I don't want to say oh why aren't we just better at this it is hard and it's like it's very tough to cut through and there's not always an answer it's sort of 
we're playing at the margins here in terms of what campaigns and what elected officials can actually change. Yeah. I mean, I would also say like, this is, this is, I know you guys have talked about this a lot, but um, this trend, a lot of this trend is going over, it's all over the world. So it's, you know, is it something that the democratic party is doing or is it something in sort of, you know, uh, industrialized, you know, post-industrial Western, mostly Western democracies that is going on everywhere where sort of left parties Mm -hmm. or center left parties are losing ground with working class voters and gaining ground with high education. And it's becoming more about culture and less about economics. Like, I think you can't ignore that, you know? Yeah. You know, offline you had that we we were talking, you said something like, you think a lot of this is a lot of the issue might come down to like, people in these campaigns or people within the democratic machine, there might be in a, like a bubble, like they're in sort of like yeah. postgraduate or like, you know, graduate degrees makes them unable to kind of empathize or not empathize, but communicate with like everyone else, basically. Like, what did you mean by that? Like what, what are examples of how you feel like maybe like uh, the party is in a bit of a bubble, a cultural bubble? Yeah. Um, <laughs> Without getting yourself I mean... in trouble. <laughs> No, yeah. I mean, I can think of uh, people um, who have been very dismissive of like, oh, well, it's just the just the media amping up all this inflation stuff and voters actually don't care about it. And like, I mean, you know, gas has barely gone up. It's like, well, I, I don't know, go talk to someone who's making 40 grand a year and see if it matters to them when their gas has gone up a dollar a gallon and, um, you know, um, or, or the cost of, yeah chicken or ground beef, right? These sort of things like those are budget line items that matter to people. So I think there's, there's that piece of it. Um, But yeah, I I think that's, it's just people kind of get out of touch. It's easy to get out of touch. Sorry, go ahead, Jay. All right. Can you, uh, can you talk a little bit about it? Like one of the things we talk a lot about on the show is just like how that relates to sort of race, right. And conversations about race and, this idea that, you know, it's something that like Chuck Roca would always call like the sort of woke white consultants that were in the Democratic Party that were, mm-hmm. you know, the ones who were in charge of like the quote Latino vote, right? <laughs> and that yeah, like, right. they, yeah. they didn't really know any actual right, right. Latino people. They just sort of like took cues from people that they had met at Georgetown or something like that, right? Who might, you know, who are certainly Latino people, but might not, you know, have much that of an understanding of people in South Texas, for example, right? And this is also, we see this all the time with Asian people as well, right? Like where like sort of there's this face of Asian America, which is like, oh, we're all progressives and we're all for affirmative action. And then you talk to like any Asian person, and they're like, absolutely not, right? Um, and then you're just like, well, how did this happen? Like there's polls, like there's numbers, there's like, uh, there's all this sort of data that supports that these populations are true are real right this is certainly true in asia in uh asian america like there seems to be like half of the university of california irvine seems like committed to putting out like facts that show that asian americans are like these sort of woke progressive people and then you look at the data and they're like we pulled like 14 people or this is like a poll of like law school graduates from ucla or something like that right like it's just weird right. and so like i mean like i like first of all like can you t- like you're a bit more inside of there you're much more inside of this than we are like we're just journalists and professor and podcasters <laughs> like why does this exist like i've never understood it because like it seems to be so self-evidently 
harmful for the party to have this happen, right? To have this sort of be the thing. And my theory about it has always just been that the white people in charge just don't actually know or care. So they just hire the people who come out of Harvard around this, right? And they're just like, okay, you figure this out. And then those people like figure this out, right? Like, but like, what what's the actual justification for this sort of structure well, in place I, and like this type of discourse? I don't think, I, I don't think you're far off. Like, I don't, I wish I had a less depressing answer for it, but like, I think that's, that's what's going on is they sort of, you know, you, you talk to a, a white person who's sort of tasked with talking to voters of color and look, increasingly people of color are being brought into those roles in the democratic party, which is really, really important. Um, but I think that uh, that's what's happening is it's like people can be uh, just distanced from the truth for the exact reason you talk to like, right. You talk to 14 law school graduates about you know what's going on with with uh with with latinos or or whatever group it may be they don't they're not necessarily representative of that group right and i think we've done similar focus groups in in south texas right right along the border and the discussion that they're having about the border and immigration is insanely different than the discussions that are happening uh among uh among Latino immigrant advocacy groups in Washington, right? You're in state capitals around the country. So, and we saw it in the election, right? We saw, if you look at the majority Asian American precincts around the country, whether they're in Orange County, whether they're in uh, New Jersey or New York, they're swinging to the right. And we saw it again in New York City, just as as you pointed out, right? With So right. I don't understand uh, why we're not listening to people, but um, we're yeah. not. Hmm. I was curious about just uh, picking up on something you said a little bit earlier about um, this, you know, working hard, getting paid for your work, um, you know, the basically the Democrats alliance with labor or, you know, some idea of the working class. And um, I guess I get frustrated in some of these meta analyses because obviously we know from some of the Trump polling that his base was much less kind of white working class than had been, you know, sort of stereotyped in media analyses. And then for the Democrats, again, just returning to what happened during the pandemic, I mean, I think the economic policies pursued by the Biden administration actually really were good for working people. And so Mm -hmm. what what is the sort of conflation or, I don't know, confusion that occurs when we move from who the workers are to who the consumers are? Because the the scenario you described, this household of 40,000 that's worried about gas prices and the price of meat, that's also the people who are benefiting from pandemic unemployment assistance, who are benefiting potentially from the kind of, you know, quote unquote, slack in the labor market right now. And yet mm-hmm. their their voting patterns or, you know, are being more affected by the kind of like fears around inflation than actually what they have gotten in way of like direct benefits to their pocketbooks. Yeah, I think one, it's hard for people to do that math. And the thing that they lose is always worse than the thing that they get is good, right? So they kind of, if, if you uh, if you take $10 away from someone and add it in somewhere else, they're focused on the 10 they lost a little more. I also think the, the increase in wages, even if it is exactly keeping up with inflation or outpacing it, um, inflation happens to everyone. The increase in wages happens sporadically, right? It's someone that quit a job and got a 20% raise in the next job or something like that. And a lot of people stayed at exactly the same place. So um, it's, when, you know, not everyone got a sort of 6% raise. So that's part of what people are reacting to, too. And they also don't know that that raise is coming again, whereas they think that inflation is going to keep coming and coming and coming. 
Is there a candidate that you can think of on the demo, you know, <laughs> in the nationals or democratic landscape that does talk about these? I'm with Tammy where, you know, sometimes I just go crazy because I'm just like, how do you, did you guys forget about all this stuff? <laughs> no. You know? But what you seem to be saying, Brian, is that yes, they do. And it's like, you know, <laughs> it's not really a political strategy to just be like, Hey, dummies, you know, like take some vibrant or whatever and like increase your memory. Like like, there's not that much that you can do here. Um, But like, is there somebody, are there people who, uh, and yet one can imagine a sort of politician who would um, be better at it, right? Who would say, hey, like, you know, like that, you know, like look at your childcare, right? Are your Mm -hmm. costs down from the $300 that we're sending you? Just has that helped? Is there anyone who does that right now that, that you can think of? I mean, yeah, the easy answer is always Barack Obama because he was just better at everything, <laughs> right? But I think that in terms of people out there um, right now um, that are talking about these issues, I think uh, Tammy Baldwin's very good at it in Wisconsin. I think Tim Ryan's very good at it in Ohio. Sherrod Brown's very good at it in Ohio um, of, of talking about like, uh, the hits that working people are taking and you know how they're working to make things better. And And I think a big piece of it too is acknowledging that people are in a rough place or showing that empathy and saying, we're trying to make it better. Um, because like you say, if you're arguing with them, then you're probably in a bad place. Right. But if you're acknowledging that things are hard and sort of talking about like, here's how they get better, then you're having yeah. a little bit different. Yeah. Maybe they'll listen. Right. Well, yeah. on that question in terms of like, you know, the president looking forward, you mentioned that, all these numbers show that um, a lot of minority groups, especially Latino and Asian, have gone to the right. Is there something the right is doing to, to, to you know, bring in these groups, to bring them into their party that is like that, you know, we in a liberal bubble are unaware of? Like, what is the right doing that is so successful with these groups? You know, there's been a lot of research on um, in language communications that I think um, have been relatively effective um, I think, uh, you certainly saw it in South Florida as a big part of the Cuban American and Venezuelan piece. Uh, I, I think talking about socialism certainly rings with <laughs> some groups. Um, right. And, uh, but that's not all of it. Right. And I think that Mexican Americans have moved away from us really heavily and there's no sort of particular reflex against socialism. I actually kind of think more of it is that, um, we tend to talk about the problems with America and can give people the idea that we think that America is bad and um, Republicans are pretty good at not doing that and (laughs) making people think that America is good and important. And I think when you're talking to most, uh, most the groups that we're talking about, Asian American, uh, Latino, most people are not very far removed from immigration and uh, most people can easily think of somebody in their family or their life that has done far worse before and is doing much better now. Um, and I think that telling broadly those voters that America is bad um, it just doesn't ring true and that the American dream is broken, too, is like something that we say a lot of. Um, and that doesn't ring true to, you know, um, some again back to these sort of back to somebody in Laredo who you know their two generations ago their family was really really struggling in Mexico. Yeah, 
Do you have right. advice for those of us who are left of this discourse, though? Because I, we, I, I mean, I think for me, my frustration is probably that the Dems talk too much about how great the U.S. is, <laughs> and maybe this isn't good for the overall democratic strategy. But obviously, there are some of us who are concerned about who want to maybe use our um, more left internationalist thinking or whatnot to um, affect the Democratic Party. So, what are the tensions, and um, you know, what are the kind of like useful applications of left pressure here? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> this is this is not profitable for you as a whole span the Democratic Party. But <laughs> I think Brad's like no, anyway. the most profitable thing for you to do would be to not talk. Yeah, you me. could be like, my Zoom has cut out. So yeah, burn burn your flags in private. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I think that I think that when you when. The critiques that really have people nodding their head across uh, across lines is um, the concentration of global power into corporate hands, right? And the sort of like transnational nature of that, like you know, sort of like um, more powerful than than right forces that we can control, um, and really concentrating wealth in dangerous ways. And, and I think that um, that can be a conversation you can have about sort of how that is affecting the world, how that is driving us apart. Um, and uh, yeah, that, that's certainly one piece of it. In terms of sort of talking about, you know, uh, anti, anti-imperialism, anti-nationalism, like that sort of piece, I think that um, the important thing is that uh, even, again, we talked about Glenn Youngkin talking about the bad of American history. And right? I, I just, I don't think it's, so simple as people are just like you know you respect this flag like love it or leave it like i think that's like a very sort of small portion of the country so i think that just because people want to hear like that um uh you know there are fundamentally really good things about america um that we all enjoy doesn't mean they're not open to a critique of things that uh the country has done yeah i you know like i I think that like there's the tension here and, you know, I think it's one that's generally left unsaid for good reasons and uh, or for like understandable reasons, at least, is that like, I think it's kind of difficult to, I think that when Democrats talk about race, they're generally talking about like black, white binary. Right? And so they're sort mm-hmm. of trying to say that like the, and they're trying to conflate the problems of Asian people or Latino people with problems, black people and that Asian Latino people generally think that their problems are completely different than black people. Right. And a lot of them might say some of them might sort of define their own success by the ways in which their problems are different than black people. Right. And so like, it's an interesting thing because it's like, it almost sets up this, this impossibility, I think, in terms of trying to disentangle this because it's like, well, you know, Democrat, like the, Democrat Party is like twenty five percent black at this point, right? Um, in America, I think that's right, right? And so, um, yeah, yeah, that's, you have yeah. you have to talk about black issues, like, and you have to think about race in terms of of black people. And yet, at the same time, if Asian and Latino populations are sort of responding mm-hmm. that, being by being like, "Hey, don't lump me in with that," or you know, like, I actually don't think they should have affirmative action, which is very pop, you know, amongst. Asians and Latinos, especially like here in California, for example, which is very progressive, like that's just the standard line, right? Like um, you saw it in the, when they tried to revive uh, affirmative action here a couple of years ago, like, you know, most of the people who vote against it were Latino and Asian. Um, I don't know, like, is there any sort of way out of it? Like, because for me, the problem is that like 
there is no out here, right? Like that they're just going to keep leeching voters unless they can com come up with some sort of hyper-specific type of message for all these different people or, you know, in a, more in our style is to just sort of drop the some of the identitarian stuff and just go with like a very broad economic argument, right? Like, but um, I also think it's sort of impossible to not talk about race here in, in this country as well. Like, I don't know, do you see any outs here? No, I, I mean, I, I totally agree. Uh, and race is still um, an extremely salient voting feature, right? You look at sort of, we talk about Latinos moving away from Democrats <clears throat> a little, Asian Americans moving away from Democrats a little. But if you look at vote numbers among those groups, they're way more democratic than somebody who was white and had the same job and lived, you know, five miles over or whatever else, right? Like it's, it's, it's clearly a salient factor uh, for voters. So I, I think probably to me, um, I, I think that the discussion of race probably has to be uh, a little more nuanced and a little more targeted from uh, Democrats and not sort of just saying that, you know, oh, this is a somebody of color, like we should start talking about uh, policing and police reform. I mean, first of all, that's Black voters are much more complicated than that, and they have jobs, and they go to work, right. and they have, need health care, and all those sort of things, right? So it's not even the way we should talk to Black voters. Or, you know, immediately, I think the natural thing of a lot of Democratic politicians say, oh, I'm going to talk to Latinos, I should talk about immigration. Well, like, no, <laughs> you should talk about education, you should talk about jobs, all these other things. Um, yeah. But... <laughs> I, I do think that um, uh, probably Democrats at least showing that they, they get that, you know, there is a difference between different groups of color is like a really good yeah. starting point that we're always not uh, great at. Do you think the Democrats are putting more effort into this? You, like there's we've talked about like, you know, more Asian or Spanish language media, for instance, like have the Democrats begun to pour the money and resources into that? Yes, I, I think you, you saw it starting last cycle um more so than ever i think it goes up every year i think there's a push to get uh, people of color into positions of power in the party and decision making positions of campaigns and i think that a lot of times what you used to have uh maybe 10 20 years ago is like okay you're uh you're you're asian you should go talk to asian voters and turn them out or you're you know latino like you need to go to uh, arizona but i think that that is becoming not the thing and people realize that people can talk to people you know across these lines and sort of the really senior positions are starting to get we're starting to get more uh people of color in them and i think that that i mean personnel does drive policy a lot of ways and i think that um not having you know just a bunch of uh, white guys like me making every decision <laughs> is uh is starting to help but um could you talk about um, labor policy as economic policy? I'm curious because Joe Biden, obviously, in the beginning of the administration, we were talking a lot about, oh, this is the most progressive since FDR. He's made the most pro-union statements in history, you know, around the Amazon um, uh, union election in Bessemer, et cetera. But obviously, and also making the PRO Act part of his agenda, um, you know, appointing a former union head to the Department of Labor. Um, all of this stuff to me seems good and, you know, seems close to bringing in some aspects of kind of a labor party into the Democratic Party, which we've been talking about for yeah. decades as a way to revitalize the 
agenda, right? But how does this, I guess, one, you know, what do you think, how do you think that's working on the federal level? But then two, um, does that sort of rhetoric or that policy framing seep into regional and local races? Or is it sort of detached because so much of kind of, you know, union and, and kind of, you know, big L labor policy occurs at the federal level? It should. It should more. I mean, I in Illinois here, um, where there's going to be a constitutional amendment that has been pushed by uh, pushed by labor and got on the ballot. Um, it's called the Workers' Rights Amendment, and basically, it blocks right to work from ever being passed. Right, and like we need to move more of that stuff. And I, I, I mean, I definitely come at this from a point of view of uh, organized labor is really the thing that does put money in working people's pockets, and mm-hmm. it's really, really uh, important. And there's frankly not a lot of other things that have worked over the history of time uh, as yeah. well as that. Or is, <laughs> or is like an organized block that is essentially allied with the Democratic Party. I mean, for better or worse from exactly. a labor perspective, but, you know. Right. Yeah. Right. And I think I think that part of the reason you've seen some shift in, uh, uh, particularly among trade union manufacturing, right, uh, labor members, a lot of people in Michigan and Ohio and places yeah. like that, Part of it is because I don't think the Democratic Party puts labor as central as it used to, right? It used to be like, if you're running for office in Michigan and you didn't have the UAW with you, like, you, this is a joke. Like, what are you even right. doing, right? But um, that that's that sort of foundational piece has kind of drifted away. So, yeah, I mean, I think we got, we got to put unions more forward and... Um, not that there haven't been issues of unions and race, but frankly, those are some of your most enlightened white voters, you know, <laughs> compared to the blue collar voter that is uh, doing something similar to non-college or non-union mm-hmm. shop. It's like totally And organizable different. because of the institutional mm-hmm. framework that they exist in. Yeah. Yeah. And Republicans get this, which is why they're passing all these right to work laws all over the place and cutting the legs right. out from under the labor. Absolutely. Like, yeah, they get it more Alec, than we do. Alec definitely gets it more than we do. Yeah. Oh, a hundred percent. We take them for granted. Hey, I want this is something that Tammy and I were talking about that I wanted to ask you about. It's a bit random, but like I noticed that like a whole bunch of, uh, you know, because we were thinking about the we were talking about like the elections in Seattle just now. I mean, in yeah, uh, Washington like, State, in Seattle, and how that they, they had like this. No, no, not her recall. We're talking like uh, the new mayor and the city council members. And how, like, basically, yep. I, there's like this host of new people who have been elected who are all people of color who are all pretty centrist in their views, <laughs> you know. And in big cities, like, that seems to be a real thing now, you know. Like, um, yeah. Like, I think that if you know, I live in Berkeley, California, but like, that's who's going to be the mayor of Berkeley for the next ten years, I think, right? Like, a sort of person of color who has like who is not like a who's not like a you know represents like sort of well, there's no people like this in Berkeley anymore, but you know, like not like a left wing candidate in Oakland I think that's probably who they're gonna elect next because like there is some backlash against this crime stuff and housing stuff people are pretty mad and so I think they're gonna probably elect like a black candidate who has very moderate views or actually even an Asian candidate at this point because there's somebody who's running who's basically like entire campaign is like fund the police like like the campaign is like to give fifty thousand dollar bonus to anyone who joins opd you know like oakland police department and to like set up new but it's like it's extremely effective because it's like people are worried about crime in oakland you know and so um i don't know is this like a strategy by the democratic party like is is this something that's happening because i've just noticed it everywhere right like where there are all these like 
candidates of I don't I don't know what the term is candidates Chicago of, yep right 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 where <laughs> like where people are being elected and there it almost is like hey we're a person of color so white uh, white white liberals can feel good about voting for us right and these are all yep. obviously all in Democrat cities but we also sort of assuage their fears and not just white fears yeah. but everyone's fears about like the left yeah. right and that like this is sort of like a new type of politician that I've seen. And I would say that like, you know, like there's part of me that's like, well, it's better than like, you know, like from a progressive standpoint, it's like, well, you know, there's some part of it's like, oh, well, at least it's a person of color, you know, but it's like a very small part of it. Right. But and the other <laughs> part of it is just like, is this a new face of like sort of the centrist Democrat party is, is always, almost always going to be a person of color? Yeah, I, I think that that's a really very real possibility um, is that uh that it's especially to city voters, it, it sounds different when a white person is talking about funding the police than a person of color. Like it sounds really different. It sounds, you know, racist, right? A lot of right. times. And, and I think that um, you'll see a lot of that. Uh, yeah, New York, you know, Seattle, right, right, say, like right. all kinds of examples of that. Yeah. And, and I think that, um, and I, I mean, Eric Adams is like a perfect example of this sort of duality of this, where he did spend a lot of his career fighting police injustice, fighting through racism yeah. in the police department, right. but then like will not, you know, is very much against defunding the police and all that sort of. Um, so I, I think you will see that a lot from cities. It'll be interesting if those candidates start sort of filtering their way up to statewide office or not. Um, but yeah, I think that part of it is because um, their uh, their their race makes the uh, discussions around sort of like maybe being a less progressive candidate more palatable to people. But I also think there's a piece of it that is um, uh, a lot of their voters and a lot of the voters for color of color that support them are not that progressive, right? Compared to right, the sort of right. white um, uh, postgraduates, like uh, <laughs> Eric Adams didn't do great in you know. Um, uh, Park Slope or, you know, uh, some of the sort of more uh, white high income uh, Brooklyn, you know, uh, Williamsburg, et cetera. But he did really, really well in um, in the primary in uh, some of the areas of color. Not right, right. Black, in the right? Bronx, especially. Yeah, yeah. it's true mm -hmm. in San Francisco, too, where um, the most progressive voters are generally like renters in expense places with really expensive rent. Right. And so you can imagine what that is. Right. <laughs> sort of Latino right. and Asian uh, homeowners on the outer ring of the city are all much more moderate, but still like, you know, compared to like any other place in the country, still pretty progressive, but you know, Oh, for sure. Much yeah. more moderate than, um, than the people in the middle of the city. Um, yeah. It's and, interesting. And I, I'm kind of, in, I'm kind of into it. Like this being like, I, I, I'm only into it from like a sort of like debate way, Andy, <laughs> right. Like where I'm just like, it is the most unassailable right. position to be in, in terms of like r rhetoric, right? <laughs> like, you can, right? Like, first of all, you could always take the most popular plank, right? And then if you run against like a more progressive white person, you can just like lay into them. You, know? <laughs> like, you can just demolish them. And just like, what a perfect sort of rhetorical and like sort of, you know, like I like constructed politician this would be right in a city where like, uh, <laughs> and then, and then uh -huh. your message is almost certainly going to resonate much more with the actual communities that, that of color, like, like you said, Brian, um, 
I don't know. I keep thinking about this and it, you know, part of me is like afraid, you know, like worries about this. And the other part of me is just kind of in awe of it and thinks like, why didn't somebody. I mean, this is basically think, Barack Obama, yeah, like, right? Yeah. Yeah. Right, yeah, right, right. Say, exactly. <laughs> right. Exactly. Like, Barack Obama's, uh, you know, uh, was, I would say probably more progressive than Hillary Clinton in that primary um, in 2008. But the thing that Barack Obama got to do is talk about race only when he wanted to, like, you know, and, you know, there were these moments when black activists would try and push him to talk about something. And he's like, I'm the first black president. Like, (laughs) I talk about what I want to talk about. You know what I mean? And so it is pretty effective on a national ticket, too, because I think then it lets Democrats uh, pick and choose their moments when they want to talk about these issues, when they feel important. And Obama obviously did that a ton, both in the campaign and as president. But he he often got to set the terms of that. Yeah, Yeah, that's always so weird that Kamala Harris like started her campaign out with like Kamala for the people and would say I'm a populist and like what? Why are you doing this? You know, just like, just be a cop. I mean, obviously I didn't, you know, for for the country, I don't want that, but you know, I was just like, as a strategy, my most cynical thing. Yeah. This is Jay, the Republican strategist coming out again. (laughs) (laughs) She should have just ran as a, it's the, you know, the the prosecutor who put more people in jail than anyone in the country, which is probably true in California, right? It's the biggest state. Like, it probably right. pretty effective. <laughs> also, that's who she is. Know. Like, I think that's yeah, who right. she know, is. Right. You that's know, it would have just been much more authentic totally. than her just being like, I'm a populist. I mean, like, I don't. <laughs> like, did you just yeah. make this up? <laughs> like, <laughs> like uh, where's yeah. the history of this? It's just so, you're being so weird. Yeah. <laughs> Stop being weird. <laughs> um, uh, are there yeah, any other that, questions? That, well, um, again, yeah. another unrelated question, but I think, you know, that, that we have you here, like, from your view, like, what is happening? What, what do you think is the long-term fate of like the so-called Bernie versus the rest of the party battle? Is, is it still, is it still a live civil war? Do you think Bernie's policies are just kind of slowly being adopted by more centrist candidates or, uh, or do you think they're trying their best to just kind of like, just thank God he's too old to run again. Like, what do you think the view from the center is of, of the last two uh, cycles of Bernie, Bernie's challenges? Well, I so I think that um, one Bernie has clearly pulled the center of gravity on a lot of economic policies, in particular of the Democratic Party. There's no question about okay. that, right? Um, and I think you've seen sort of the like the Democratic, you know, moderate position as like, the public option, which was you know in right. on healthcare. But in 2008, that would have been you know that was the position that you know Joe Lieberman or Ben Nelson or whoever was blocking him was getting beat up on over right. So like Bernie has definitely impacted the rest of the party. Uh, there's no way he he wouldn't have. Um, I also think that uh, to some degree the divide is a little bit lost on voters. There are a ton of voters out there who like Don't care. Bernie Sanders and Joe Biden who like Bernie Sanders and Hillary Clinton. So. <laughs> I think this is going to continue to be a divide. And I think as, as our party gets more, um, frankly, we start losing a lot of the moderates and conservatives from our party and bringing in some of the more college educated voters um, and, and get younger as a party um, as we lose older voters. It's going to be more ripe for uh, a Bernie Sanders type to uh, to win a primary in four years or eight years or you know twelve years or whenever that would be. Might not be Bernie, right? Yeah. I probably won't be Bernie in twelve years, but ninety-two. That'd be amazing. 
I, I mean, I would really object 90. if in 12 years he was still running. I'd be like, come on, man. I'm amazing, 53 honestly. years old right now, you know? Like, I, I don't know how many years I have left at this point, you know? Like, I'm 12 years from Social Security and you're still running. Like, come on. You're like 102. Oh yeah. I'll just put him Trump's oh. fake tan and his hair. He'll look great. Like, he'll yeah. be perfect, you know? <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, Trump. Um, actually, that's, that, that's my last question, at least. If you guys have other ones, then please, yeah. you know. Um, are you, like, how much should the Democrat strategy right now be actually about, you know, being worried about 2024 and Trump? Because it, like, seems to really vary on who you talk to, right? Like, I mean, and I can't actually make heads or tails of it. Like, some days I'm like, well, he's going to be a president again. (laughs) And then some days I'm like, there's no way he's going to be able to get through the primary, you know, and like, uh, like, he might not even run. So like, where, where, where's your head at with that? I, I think odds on favorite, he is the Republican nominee in 2024, 2024. That's not a number. 2024. Um, I I think that that's probably going to happen. I mean, I think he wants to run. I think that his party would be behind him. He's taken over that party. I mean, that's his party now. Right. And, and I think that um, anytime he's on the ballot, he can win. He almost did in 2020 and he did in 2016. Right. And, um, is he going to win the popular vote? Like, no, but unfortunately that doesn't matter. Right. So um, I'm scared of it. I think uh, it's really, really scary in terms of it being a political message for us. I don't think it's good because not every swing voter is there, but in terms of reality, like, yeah, I think it's, it's a serious challenge and it scares me because uh, you know, I don't know, Donald Trump, you know, like he's the worst. So, the, yeah, I, I, okay, wow. Now I'm much more worried about it than That's I. Very, you yeah, I know. T- you should have seen Tammy's face while you were talking. It was like I know, I can see, a look yeah, of like deep yeah. concern, and then a question of like uh, you, you can see the question going through. Maybe I'll just stay in Korea. I know. You know? It's like, where's my visa application? <laughs> Not, like this book will require twelve thing. years of research. <laughs> <laughs> I must stay here. Um, oh hey, Andy, anything else? Um, this was this is this has been really informative. Thank oh you yeah, that us. was great. Yeah, thanks. Man. You know, despite the depressing. No, ending. I really enjoyed it. Um, sorry, what was that? <laughs> no, despite the depressing, depressing ending, ending yeah, which is right, not yeah. your yeah. fault. But, yeah. yeah, it's good to be a real. I, you know what? Here's 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 we'll we'll, we'll leave it on. A, <laughs> uh, I think that. Um, Democrats are really running into trouble in this midterm. And, you know, all this thing is that we've talked about is true. Democrats got killed in 2010. Democrats got killed in 1994. And then two years later, um, you know, Bill Clinton beat Bob Dole by, I don't know, 10, 15 points. Two years later, you know, Barack Obama pretty handily dispatched Mitt Romney, right? So like, and whether it's, I don't know who's going to be the nominee all this time and all that yeah. sort of stuff, but like, let's sort of imagine it's Biden running again. You know, it's Biden versus Trump again. There's definitely a world, all these economic problems have sort of worked themselves out and all that sort of stuff. And, and we kind of like pretty comfortably beat Donald Trump. Like yeah. that's a, that's a very, very possible world. Wow. A rematch. Has it happened? God, God help us though, right? Like, just like, <laughs> what would you so then be like? Upsetting. A rematch? Like, like the casual. You'd have orders. like Biden or Trump on the ballot five elections <laughs> in a row. Oh my God. Oh God. 
Yeah, they're like, uh, yeah. I looked at the predicted odds, and it's really, really does seem like it's those two are the only two that you can actually even, mm. you know, that are registering at all. And I just don't see how it changes. Like, you know, like they're not going to run Kamala instead of Biden. They're not going to yeah. run Pete instead of Biden. And then yeah. you're like, okay, well, what's what's the other option? It's like AOC like tries to tries to, <laughs> tries to like come on, like none of these are realistic options at this point, right? So how could it not be Biden versus yeah, that's Trump? That's crazy. Right? Like, like uh, this idea that it's uh, like Eric oh, Nikki Adams, Haley, Bruce or... Harrell, right? <laughs> Saviors of the Democratic Party. I think you already mapped this out, Jay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, Eric Adams would be the weirdest president, <laughs> I think. You know, but like uh, living in Jersey with no, there. I, I, which I, right? Which that is disturbing. Which state does he run as being from? Like that's right. the real question, right? Like you know, yeah. You got, you <laughs> 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 yeah, Eric Adams is Korean because he lives in Fort Wayne. There's like a uh, there's like this whole i don't know the the issue that i have you know nationally with those types of candidates honestly is that like the press hates them right and like you know you saw it with adams you saw it with uh you see it with Lori lightfoot right that the press is generally to the left of the of these candidates of color who are sort of in the center and like they just get they they do get pilloried and you know like you can say it's it's for good reason or not for good reason but i i do think it's like a very hard media thing for those types of candidates i don't know if that was true in seattle i didn't pay as much attention was that true tammy like where was like this not as much because the seattle times is kind of aligned with the herald camp (laughs) and that's the kind of dominant regional paper but yeah i know what you mean like in terms of left-leaning media certainly yeah Yeah. if only the seattle yeah yeah yeah, the stranger certainly like yeah Yeah. they love lorena and you know yeah exactly yeah. yeah Is the stranger still around? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and it's a surprisingly it's... dominant political force in the city. Yeah. yeah oh, really? Well, I can yeah. see that. It's struggling financially, obviously, but it's still around. <laughs> yeah, I love that. I, lo- I when I lived in Seattle when I was nineteen, by myself, uh, it was like an aspirational thing to one day write for the stranger. Yeah. You know, it's Same. like, oh my god, this is like what could actually. This is what's possible. Like, I, that's the only reason I watched. Uh, you know, like Wong Kar Wai movies was because they had some like film uh, what a critic that was like, oh. you know, that had written about oh, it. Really? It's oh, very absolutely. informative my thinking about what media should be. It was like one year I lived in Seattle when I was very young and then I <laughs> read The Stranger, much more so than The Voice because I think by the time I moved to New York, yeah. I, was, I was like too old and over. ambitious and also it was kind of over. Yeah, you know? I was, yeah, like, it was like the most Seattle famous writer in the world. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Find it in the Thanks, Brian. Um, yeah. yeah. Cool. Uh, we will, uh, this, uh, okay, so I have to exit the show. So thank you for listening to our show. You can hear my heater in the background, I imagine. It's just like, you know, it's going crazy. I, um, you, and uh, you can contact the show at time to say goodbye pod at gmail.com or you can contact us on, why can't I talk right now? Um, if you'd like to contribute to the show, it's goodbye.substack.com. There you'll have an option to contribute to the show for $5 a month. Your donation would be very much appreciated. It helps us keep doing this and keeps the lights on. And if you want to reach us on Twitter, it's at TTSGPod. I think that's all I have to say. Um, all right, till next week. Thanks, Brian. Thank you.